I only met today's guest about 18 months ago, which sort of bucks the trend on this show, as most guests are folks I've known for years and years. But I got to say, it feels much longer. This dude fascinated me right out of the gate. The sense of humor was sharp. There was this meaningful knowledge of film and, more impressively, filmmakers. He's a Michael Mann guy. You know what I'm saying? And I just assumed he liked the war on drugs, which he does. If I tell him that he needs to watch a certain movie because it's important to me, he'll go right out and buy it. He has my respect, and I haven't even mentioned his military service. As Chief Bosun's mate, United States Navy, retired, he has seen the world in ways most of us can only dream about, yet has witnessed things we hope to never experience. He's a gifted storyteller, and I find his perspective refreshing. So it was a no-brainer to have him on the show to not only discuss his career, but to revisit a film that we both hold in high regard. His name is Jason Thompson. The film is First Blood. The podcast is backed by popular demand. I could have killed them all. I could have killed you. I'm telling you the law. I'll give it to me. Don't push it. Don't push it. I'll give you a war you won't believe. Jason Thompson, welcome to my show, my friend. I've been wanting you on this show for a little while now. We're going we're gonna to talk about how we met in a few minutes because it's not that long ago. No, not really. I'm thrilled to have you. Welcome. How are you doing tonight? Number one, I'm very excited. I remember listening to Back by Popular Demand when you had your brother on for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Nice. And I, I have uh, Indiana Jones paraphernalia throughout the house, so I was giddy. And then I was like, I want to get on this guy's show. Like, oh my God. And I'm, I'm, I'm truly giddy to be here to talk about one of my favorite flicks, First Blood. I'm ready. Awesome. And, and before we do that, mere minutes ago, before you and I uh, got on and, and hit record, Aaron Judge, my boy, just went yard against the Rangers for number 62. You're wearing a Detroit Tigers shirt as we speak. Uh, obviously, you're a baseball guy. I know you're a baseball guy based on our, our back and forth. Um, how do you feel about Aaron Judge? What are your thoughts about that? Number one, it's an incredible season. But I think what's even more interesting to me than the 60-second home run, which, I mean, which is great. I mean, American League all-time leader, you know, single-season leader, that's that, that's just awesome. Um, he's in the hunt for the Triple Crown, too. Yep. And that's that's an achievement because – my own guy, Miguel Cabrera, was the last guy to do it. And it Maybe. hadn't happened in, since 67 with Carl Yastrzemski up in Boston. I didn't think I was going to see it in my lifetime just because of the way modern hitters are. This is a hell of a run for Aaron Judge. And I'm, I'm really rooting that, that this man gets the triple crown as well. I think the thing that I'm most impressed with with him, two things. One is the way he goes about himself and his demeanor. And, you sure. know, he's got he's got a lot of jeter in him in terms of the, how he puts the team forward and, and doesn't say a lot with the press and sort of deflects a lot of attention, which I really love about him. And I think that's a great role model for kids to kind of look up to. But also that he, that he, he takes it on himself to hit for average. And, you know, in this day with, with strikeouts up and guys that usually have power like that, they usually have a lot of strikeouts. But the fact that he's he's above 300 for the season and he's, he's threatening triple crown like that is very impressive. What's what's Im- more impressive is the fact that he's like six, seven. 
he doesn't have a strike zone. He doesn't. Aaron Judge has a strike district. Right. It, his strike zone has its own zip code. And, like, it's amazing he's adapted to that because he knows that, you know, pitchers were taking that as a weakness. The strike zone's enormous. He's, his swing has to cover that whole zone. Um, and he's now he's adapted. And that's the great thing. That's yeah. what all great ball players do. They adapt to injury. They adapt to situations. Aaron Judge has learned that, man, I have a huge strike zone. You know, it's not Ricky Henderson at the plate. You know, it's really not. It's a guy who's 6'7", you know, and that ball is coming downhill at you at 90-plus miles an hour. And as we've seen, Major League umpires often miss calls. And honestly, a guy that big, yeah. They're not going to give him the benefit of the doubt. They miss calls on him quite a bit. And uh, as a fan, Aaron uh, Aaron Boone gets tossed a lot of games because he he will he'll definitely mouth off from the dugout on on some of those those missed strikes. So listen, man, congratulations on your retirement from the United States Navy. Uh, thank you. I want to thank you for your service. Thank you, Chief Bosun's mate, nineteen ninety eight through two thousand twenty two. You just retired literally a couple months That's ago. Right. Tell us a little bit more about the details of that. Like what. What did you enjoy most about being in the Navy? You know, what prompted the retirement? The mic is yours. Whoa, uh, heavy question. Let me see. Um, man, it was 24 years and I think uh, one month and a day or something like that. I don't miss wearing the uniform every day. Um, I still have it. I still have my khakis. I still have my anchors. Um, and these things are very significant to a Navy chief. But I was ready to go. I was ready to move forward into a new life. I'm a full-time student now. I bought a house. I relocated. In 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 three weeks, I retired from the Navy, which in it of itself was a was an ordeal. I bought a house, closed on the house, and relocated across the country, and and then and then enrolled and went to school for the first day. So I'm a full-time student. Um, I've been mistaken for a professor six times now. The hair is also longer and the beard is also now available, which I didn't see, you know, a year ago. Yes, that's also true. The hair is longer and I do have the beard. I think it's an, a, it's a requirement for all active duty military guys. Uh, they don't let you retire <laughs> unless you check the box that says, yes, I will grow a beard for at least the first year. You will not find me, you know, in, in my pickup truck with a pair of wraparound shades screaming at YouTube about whatever thing is, uh, you know, upsetting the vets <laughs> and I'm not working a bar stool down to VFW, you know, five nights a week. That's not real. That's not what I'm, you know, built for. Um, I'm very excited to be a full-time student. Um, it's been a total change of pace, but there are occasions where I absolutely miss my friends in the Navy. Uh, I miss the people more than anything. The job's the job and that anybody can do any job as long as they're well-trained and they've been in the game long enough. It's not a problem. Um, but the lifelong friendships that you form, um, and especially in the Navy's chief's mess community, um, a chief is a brother or a sister no matter where I go, no matter how long I've been retired. Um, and I miss those candid conversations. I miss the freedom to just express whatever I'm feeling and know that I'm going to be accepted no matter what I say. Um, there might be some disagreements about how I say it. Um, but I, I miss I miss my friends. That's really what it is. You and I haven't talked a whole lot about your service because you know I want to re- respect your privacy. But like I assume you have traveled the world. Like tell us a little bit more about you know and and that's that's a lot of time, right? So I mean, have you like what have you seen? What have you done? Where where have you oh, been? Man, fifty seven countries, all seven continents. Um, I broke through the ice on a submarine. Um, 
in the Antarctic. Wow. Uh, so that that was that was number seven. Uh, but it wasn't until my last shipboard deployment uh, where I got to see the coasts of Africa. I got to, I, I finally made it to Africa. Um, I'd always wanted to do that. Um, I have in fact sailed the historic seven seas of antiquity. Um, I've circumnavigated the globe twice. Um, sailed through the Suez Canal, past the Rock of Gibraltar. I got to play catch on the floor of the Roman Colosseum after bribing a guard. Uh, that was that was the thing. That was the thing that happened. Um, That's we awesome. made port in um, uh, southern Italy, and we took the bus up to Rome because yeah, I'm going to go see Rome. Um, and so day one, we went to the Vatican. So I got to see the necropolis. Um, I got to see where, you know, St. Peter was crucified. Um, the Sistine Chapel, all these glorious things, you know, there. Um, and then the next day we were at the Colosseum, but a lot of it was closed for renovation. But I had, I had some Euro handy and I just looked at the guard and I said, give me five minutes. And I held up some cash and he just waved me in. So I took a buddy in and I brought two baseball gloves and a ball. So I played catch on the floor of the Roman Coliseum. That is unbelievable. Oh, well, we're both Indiana Jones fans. I got to the temple in, in last crusade. Really? You were there. I was there at Petra in Jordan. Yeah, I was there. And what's incredible is it's exactly like that. Not, not the interior. The interior was all a set, but the can the Canyon that you, you have to walk through, um, on a northbound passage um, is so narrow at points you and I could not walk side by side. We'd have to turn sideways uh, to get through. Um, it's very tight. It's very beautiful. But when you walk in, it literally opens up and there's Petra, the treasury building of, of ancient Petra. It's facing south. You're facing north. And it's it, it's that's incredible. Did you choose wisely and drink from the, the cup of Christ? Uh I have the cup of Christ. I have I have a facsimile of the cup of Christ up on my wall right now. How does that feel to you that you've you've seen things that most of us will never see? Like that's incredible. Well, and some things that I never want to see again. <laughs> um, that is true. I, I, that is I true. I mean, there were, there were two wars going on, um, and a, and a, you know a variety of other conflicts that exist. You know, there's always a conflict going on somewhere around the world. Uh, shout out to the women in Iran right now. Fight on, ladies. Did you see combat, Jason? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. You um, did? Okay. Actually, I was the, the navigator, um, civilian speak, Navy speak as quartermaster for navigator. Um, we were the very first ship to launch missiles into Afghanistan following the terror attacks on 9-11. Oh, wow. I was already on deployment. Um, we were in Bahrain. Um, a fuel stop, and we were done. The next day, we were pulling out of the, the Persian Gulf, and we were headed back home with a glorious return trip planned. Um, so I go up on watch uh, that night. I check my email before I go up on watch. And my dad uh, sent me a message and said, as I'm watching this, the Twin Towers in New York are falling. Jeez. So um, this was before email was actually really good. We didn't have a good satellite system. So we were getting broken news feeds uh, we didn't quite know what was going on. We thought we just assumed it was World War Three, and of course, you know, with with the rumor mill being what it was, like just everyone was talking about it. No one had anything definitive. Everyone was talking to the guys in the communications department and the intel department about what they know, and they can't tell us, yep. you know. And so there's stuff that only the captain and the executive officer can know, and 
you know, things like this. So October 7th, um, we're in the Northern Arabian Gulf, um, about 12 miles off the coast of Pakistan. And that night we fired the very first missiles um, into Afghanistan in response to 9-11. Yeah, that was a thing. I will say this about the war years. And this is not mine. This is Sebastian Younger, the, the brilliant war correspondent. I know he is. Yep. He said, perhaps the only good purpose for war is that it allows men to love each other as they should, as brothers, without fear or shame. And I always re- I really took that to heart because I know a lot of men who are emotionally unavailable to say things like, I love you, to their best buddy or their brothers or their families. Uh, and that's very difficult for them. Um, and the guys you serve with become family. Um, so it, it just always struck me as strange that we don't do that in the civilian world. And I've taken it upon myself to let people know that I love them. And I, I, I do it without shame or fear or reservation because I do love these people. These are, you know, the people in my life are important people to me and they're significant. And I need to recognize that. And they need to know how I feel about them. So I, I say it frequently, and that was perhaps the most important lesson uh, from the war years. And there's geopolitical debates and things of that nature, and I'm not interested in those things. Politicians understood. Politicians will be politicians. How did you know that it was time? I mean, you and I could talk about your service of three hours, so I apologize <laughs> for wanting to kind of wrap it up. But like, how did how did you know that it was time after 24 years? Uh, forced. Well, I had reached uh, what's known as high year tenure. Um, okay. I was. Uh, I was available to be promoted to senior chief. It just didn't happen. Um, and so higher tenure for a chief petty officer is 24 years. So I started mm-hmm. preparing. Um, I wanted to stay another year in California. Um, but I kid you not, five or six days after my retirement was approved, um, Navy, big Navy admin released a message saying people can now serve past their higher tenure Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> For another year or two. Um, and But we, we wouldn't have gotten the house if, um, you know, if that was the case, if I had stayed in California. I, I certainly can't afford to buy a house in Southern California. That's just, no. that's not real. Um, I, I, I hate tired, trite cliches like, you know, everything happens for a reason. Um, sometimes bad things happen because you're an asshole and um, some things just happen. And so I found the house that I I am very excited to live in. Um, I love my neighborhood. It's great to be back home. My dad's an hour from me. I I saw my dad in the first week um, more times than I had seen him in the previous five years. I love that. You know, from the bottom of my heart, again, I really appreciate you opening up just now and letting us, you know, just kind of scratch the surface, honestly, about some of your experiences. And again, thank you for your service. Um, not an easy topic for me to pivot from, so, but I'm just going to do it. Just go, just so go. Let's, uh, let's talk about how we met. Yeah. We met in something called video village. I've talked about video village in the past on the show. It's a virtual, sc- um, screenplay reading, um, initiative that my brother and my buddy, Nick and I kind of created a couple of years ago, but why don't you talk a little bit about how you, you found us. So I met your brother, Jim, about 12 years ago at a brunch organized by an ex-girlfriend, and I happened to be sitting next to your brother. I think Oliver had just been born or was about to be. 
And I had remarked that I love his name, Oliver. It's, it's, it's not a common name. Yep. And Jim told me that he's a big comic book fan and a big film fan. And he, he had put a, a bunch of names forward to, to, to Mary Lou, um, who, who's an absolute gem of a human being. And she gave a bunch of down votes. <laughs> and finally he offered up Oliver, Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow. And she said yes. And bam. And so immediately a, a, a friendship goofing back and forth during the entire brunch didn't even pay attention to most of the other conversations that were going on and then you know we became social media friends and then the pandemic okay and you nick and jim put together video village as a way to to stay in touch to to have that sense of humanity during a, a pretty inhumane time when we were all isolated and cut off from family and friends and what an experience. And so you guys had already been doing it for, I, I guess, a year, maybe. We were doing it almost a year before you, right? Right. Because we're, we're at the, the two-year anniversary right now. We started with Glengarry Glen Ross in, I want to say, October of 2020. That's a great play. Oh, man, that would have been, right? been incredible to see. Yeah, we're going to do it again just to get you oh, in it. Oh, my God, so. yes. Um, <laughs> so – First, David Mamet's just a genius. David, of he just he doesn't, of he doesn't course, get nearly he the love that he deserves, but it's fine. Um, so, yes, Jim invited me, and I said, oh, my God, this sounds like a blast. Let's do this. Um, and so I look forward to, to reading the scripts. Um, I look forward to seeing you guys' faces. It's just so much fun. Um, and the before and the after conversations are great. Um, so you came in, I want to, so correct me if I'm wrong. You came in on Bull Durham, right? I think that was the first one. Was yeah, that your I, first one? Been. So that would have been like just over a year ago. So I think we did Bull Durham in summer of, of 21. Um, I feel like that was your first one. I'm not certain of that. I'd have to go back and, and you know, check the records. Um, you may be right. I, I played, I played Skip. I played the manager of the, of the Durham Bulls, which was, That's right. first of all, it's an incredible movie. I love that movie. It's sure one is. of the greatest romantic comedies of all time. And it's, you know, two of America's greatest pastimes, baseball and sex. Um, <laughs> with peak Susan Sarandon, um, Pete Costner as well. Oh, I would say. yes. Yes. Pete Costner. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, seriously, one of the great film stars of our, of our time. So the way Video Village works for our listeners is that we, we get on we get on Zoom and there's usually anywhere between like, you know, 10 to maybe 15 people that are involved and they all have different characters. Some of us play multiple characters. If you, if you have a lead part, you're, you're only playing the lead part. But if you've got, you know, a, a secondary tertiary character, you're, you're probably doing a few of those. Anyway, we get on for a while. We introduce the newcomers. I remember we introduced you. And then, you know, we do the reading. And then obviously there's kind of the post game, right, where everybody, after the reading is done, we, we stay online for another 35 minutes or so. It's late for the East Coasters, not for you and me because we we're both West Coast. But sure. we, we kind of talk. So anyway, I remember I remember just listening to you. And I'm going to I'm going to give you a little bit of love here. So like. There is like there's this presence. I wrote this down like there's this presence that Jason brings to things like your persona, your voice, your passion. And I have a feeling that my listeners have already picked up on this, you know, 20 minutes into this podcast. But I, so I was sitting there listening to you talk at the beginning and at the end. And I, and I said this to myself. I was like this fucking guy. And I'm like, wow. And I, and I was I was texting my brother. I was texting Malone. And I'm like, Jason, this guy's awesome. And then I just started texting yeah. you. And, 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 and that's sort of how our relationship kind of came out, came out of that was you and I started texting each other 
on a pretty regular basis. And and I remember I would just send you like I picked up on something with you really quickly that you and I had a very um, very similar film and music taste. Mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think we probably, again, only really barely gotten into that, but like, I, I could tell really quickly that you and I were developing a bit of a shorthand and I would like, I, I think I referenced the war on drugs to you at one yes, point, you which did. Is one of my favorite, yes, you did. one of my favorite bands. And you wrote back and you're like, I've got the vinyl for lost in the dream. And I'm like, all right, this guy, this guy's legit. I get this guy. He gets me. We're, we're going to be fast friends. And so we've been sort of like, kind of like do, doing this dance for like the better part of a year now where we've, we send each other random film thoughts and opinions and exchanges. And I'll say something about David Fincher. You'll write oh, me God. Back something about Paul Thomas Anderson. Like <laughs> I just like, I found me, I feel like I found my equal in, in a lot of things. Right. And, and so like, again, like, as I said, at the start of this, like I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. We just needed to find the right topic, mm. but like, I, I, it's amazing to me that we've had this connection and I've only known you for a year. It's funny that as we get older, our circle of friends closes as it's going to, right? Yep. And it's rare as you reach a certain age that you meet new friends and you make new friends. It doesn't happen very often. Um, and so when it does happen, because as you get older, you start to know, you know what you're down for, what you, what you dig, what you like to read what you like to listen to, what you like to watch, you know, these things. And there are sort of subtextual clues that come out in the mix, you know, a a reference here, a lyric there, an author's name there that just sparks a thing. And you're like, wait a minute, you know that I, how do you, okay. And then, and then, you know, you start to, you know, unravel a little bit, you pull at the, the, you know, uh, you pull at the strings and you, and you start to piece these things together and I remember very distinctly after the war on drugs conversation, um, I went back through and I listened to their whole catalog the next day, <laughs> just on a loop as I was doing these things. Um, I'll have you know, I still have not watched um, Out of the Furnace. That's okay. But, that's but all right. I did buy it. So that's next. Ooh, I'm impressed that you actually laid down. That's nice. Yeah, Solid. Yeah. So well, well I trust your judgment well now so clearly and so evidently that I I was like, oh, yeah. This yeah. And it's it's got Christian Bale with a shotgun on the cover. Like, uh, yeah, I'm in. Let's let's do this. You'll, you're you're going to you're going to love it. It's one of the best movies of the last decade that nobody really knows about. That's a bold statement it's- and I like that. And that's a good conversation to have. Some of the best movies that no one knows about because Right. Social network got a lot of attention, and rightfully so. It was script by Aaron Sorkin, David Fincher film, huge yep. cast. Yeah, great performances, amazing score, um, Academy Award nominations and wins. Um, but Out of the Furnace is one of those things that slipped under the radar. And people who like film, what was another one? Prisoners, Benito uh, Villeneuve. Oh, yeah, sure, with uh, Hugh Jackman. Yeah. yeah, and Jackman gave the performance of his life in that. He was never better. You know, it's interesting. Like when we do our video village stuff, like I, I'm not the most talkative guy, which is ironic because I have a podcast, which makes no sense. Um, this is hard for me. And uh, but you'll say stuff in our pregame and our postgame and I'll be sitting there listening to you and you'll make a reference and I'll be like, that fucking guy just made a money reference. And, and, and I'll, and Scott Safon does that as well. Safon's another guy that I love and like, he's going to be on my next episode and, 
you guys both make these references and these, you know, you, 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 you nail something and I'll be like, I'll literally write you in real time while you're talking like Jason, that's fantastic. <laughs> I love that you just said that. So like a couple months ago, I guess back in May, you know, I, and again, I give my brother all the props on this because the first year of this show, I was interviewing people that I've, I've worked with throughout my career. Um, and it was, you know, getting to know them, the, your, their accomplishments. It was always more of a marketing sort of lens. And I, and I, and I loved doing that, but my brother had the idea that let's revisit Top Gun right on the eve of, of Top Gun Maverick coming mm. out. And that's when I did an episode with him and, and Scott and Nick, and we talked about Top Gun and why that movie was significant. And that really sort of inspired me to sort of pivot the show. And, and I've always wanted to focus the show on film in some capacity, but I, I answered to nobody but myself on the show. So I decided. It's a great feeling. That's that, a great feeling. It's, it's an amazing, it's very liberating. And I was like, you know what? As much as I liked the early episodes, I want to focus on movies that are, are important to me for numerous reasons. So after Top Gun, I did Wayne's World, which was a throwback. And it was really revisiting my college life and some of my buddies. And then I, you know, I did uh, a Tarantino episode with my buddy Lance a couple, a couple weeks back. And, so you and I have been kind of figuring out what was the right topic to talk about. Because I knew I was going to have you on. I'm like, Jason's definitely going to be a guest. Um, I don't know what we're going to talk about with Jason, but you and I eventually landed on First Blood. Yes. A great film. It's, it's celebrating its 40th anniversary this month. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how First Blood both entered our lives. I'll start. Um, and my brother's going to appreciate this because the first time I saw this movie was on VCR. The VCRs just kind of came out in 1983, 82, right around the time that First Blood was released. And I remember, and we went down to the video connection in Danbury, Connecticut, and we rented First Blood. And I remember like being in the video store and I saw this wall, right? And this was like all the movies were, they, they when you rented it, that you brought it home and it, it was in like this blue leather, big giant cassette case. And we bring home First Blood and I couldn't believe that there was like this concept where you can actually go to the store and you took a movie home. Like this was just like, you know, this was 1983. This was, we didn't have cable. I, I didn't, I didn't understand this. Like this was just fascinating to me. And I'm telling you, this was a life changing moment for Dennis Kamlick for so many reasons. It, int it introduced me to film. I, I, I was always into movies at that point, but I really became mo into movies after this. And, and I think that explains my career, quite frankly, in terms of enter entertainment marketing. So that's how I saw First Blood. I saw it on VHS as a, as a 12 year old. Didn't see it in the theater. I don't even remember it coming out when it came out in the theater. And I'm sure it was probably a pretty big thing. And we'll get into this in a little bit, that it was a, a fairly big release when it came out in 1982. But as an 11-year-old, I didn't see the ads. I didn't see the marketing. I didn't see the newspaper ads or the TV spots. All I remember is that I watched it on VHS and the movie had a profound impact on me. How did you see it for the first time? The video store itself, a lot of people don't realize that in the early days of VHS and VCRs, number one, there was the Betamax Wars. Sony eventually, I mean, Sony had Betamax, but they refused to market it, and they refused to release the proprietary information. And that basically killed Betamax. Um, it's a better format than, than VHS. They always said that. They always said that. But that's okay. Yep. Well, so my dad has worked in commercial audio and video forever. He still has a Betamax player. And to show me one day, he compared the two. 
we we took a, a, a Betamax version of Casablanca and a VHS version of Casablanca, and he played them side by side because that's the kind of nerd that my father is. I, I love this. I love this. And I, I was maybe 12, maybe 11-ish. You've got some years on me, so I was I was two in '82, um, but he was demonstrating the difference, and he's still got a laser disc player and all these things. Um, sure. So he was showing me the difference. The difference was clear, but also for home distribution, VCRs were very expensive, and VHS cassettes ran from eighty nine bucks to like one hundred and twenty nine bucks. They were priced to rent. They were not priced to own. Precisely. So we had this problem where you kind of had to have a lot of money in your pocket to get, you know, a DVD rental. Now you talked about Top Gun earlier and Top Gun was one of the very first features that got a VHS release at a discounted price. You could get it at McDonald's for 30 bucks as long as you bought some food. And that was insane, completely unheard of at the time. It was, it was a big deal. 26 bucks, yeah, 20, yep. 26 bucks. That was crazy. Um, and and now you can you know you can jump on 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 Apple and and get a, a feature for five dollars. That's crazy. I and, and I God knows I've I've exhausted budgets uh, buying things that I used to own on VHS that I then had to go buy on DVD or that I owned on vinyl or then cassette and then CD and then had to go every platform right. So I think I remember the first time I saw this was with my grandfather, my mother's father, who was a Marine. And he had a lot of extra, you know, extra income. So he had a VHS cassette and he was very big into war films because Marine, um, but a very thoughtful guy, a very intuitive human being, um, very, very interested in art. He was a painter, a drafter, an architect. Um, he liked a lot of artistic expression in his life. And, but war films are war films. And while I wouldn't technically qualify Rambo as a war film, I agree. It has, a war history. Mm-hmm. And that is significant, especially in the character of John Rambo and, you know, the sheriff of the town. So I think he was watching it when I was visiting him one day and it was riveting because I had never seen anything like this before. And much like yourself, I'm certain I was far too young to be watching a thing of this nature. I was probably <laughs> six or seven. Makes me feel better. Right. I was six or seven. My family didn't really care about these sorts of things. And then, of course, over time, it became a staple on cable television. It was yep, HBO. It was on HBO a lot. I mean, even Net- TBS used to play it regularly, um, edited for time and format, and this, that, and the other. But it's a relatively sleek film. A lot of the a lot of the movie was was cut um, because of Stallone's insistence. Yeah, we're we're going to get into that. Yeah, but you know, I think it clocks in at just over an hour and a half. Yep, it's like 93 minutes. Right, which yep. is perfect for a two-hour block, you know, in the middle of a Sunday afternoon on TBS because they get all their commercial time in and they can play the entire film. But I will say this, like, as you said earlier, HBO ended up burning that movie all the time. And we never were fortunate enough to have, you know, pay cable in my house. My dad was not a not a believer in HBO, but I, I had friends that had HBO. So I would I would beg and plead and like, guys, here's the, here's the blank Scotch T120 videotape, please – Take this to your house. I know First Blood because I would check it on TV Guide. I know First Blood is on HBO the next three evenings at 10 o'clock. Please, please record this for me. 
and, and, and they did, and they would give it to me and then I had it. Right. So now like now first bloods in the library and then I could watch it as much as I watched and, and I, as much as I wanted to. And I watched it a lot to the point that, you know, I'm, I'm much older now. I will say this proudly that first blood is an absolute without a doubt top 20 movie for me. That's where it ranks for me. Where does is that is that is it that high for you or not? And it's okay if it's not. I'm curious. Where does the movie sit for you? I'll answer that question in a second. I want to get back to the to the taping things off of VHS or on VHS (laughs) real quickly. The struggle was real. The struggle was real. So since Halloween is coming, right? Yep. I remember Turner Classic Movies, TCM was doing a, a marathon of the classic Universal Pictures, right? Dracula, yeah. Frankenstein, The Mummy. The Monster Universe. Sure. All of it, right? The Invisible Man. Shout out Claude Rains. Oh. Um, <laughs> and I wanted them. So I got – you could play – you could record at regular speed, which was two hours, right? Your THX, yeah. you know, two hours. You could play extended – Right or, or long play for four or, or super long play for six hours. So I still have a VHS that my father recorded of the classic Universal monster flicks. Uh, I think five of them over the course of a six-hour videotape, and it's it, it's bad. It's a bad record. The quality is never <laughs> as good on in EP versus SP. I totally get it, uh, but I still have it just for posterity, just because it's 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 a charming relic of a, of a bygone era, and my my life is. Charming relics of a bygone era. Is Rambo a top 20 film for me? Um, probably not. It's imminently rewatchable. If it's on, I'm watching it. If I, if I see it come on um, a, a, a cable network, yeah, I'm, I'm in. The, the, the remote gets put down. The remote goes down. Yeah. And you've got my attention. When we started talking about this and flirting with the idea of First Blood, I rewatched it that night, and I've watched it. Of course, of course you did. <laughs> uh, and I've, I've watched it several times since then. And what's interesting is when we talk about bygone relics, oftentimes you know, our memories tend to whitewash things and paint things over the bad parts. And there are really great touches that aren't mentioned in Rambo. Mm-hmm. Um, little, little, little things that you wouldn't normally make in a film. Like, for example, when we first get to the police station after Rambo's been apprehended or arrested, rather, um, they're painting. They're painting in the office. Now, this is a totally normal thing. It's going through a remodel, right? Right. This is a totally normal thing that happens every day in real life. But this is not a thing that people put in film. The set is the set. It's designed as it is. It's ready-made. Here you go. Here's your set. They were like, no, this is not realistic. And I love those little touches. And, yep. and, and There's a lot of them. There, there, there's a lot, there's of, them. A lot of them. The, the guy reading a pornographic magazine at the radio, you know, while the hunt yep. is on for Rambo. Having and been, he's like, put the magazine down, pay attention. We have one shot at this. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You're, you're like, oh, man, that, that's, it's, it's a good writing touch. So um, if you're writing things, if you're listening to this out there and you're writing things, um, sometimes it's important to put the plot aside and think about people as human beings in these circumstances and in these situations. What are these people doing? Well, a guy's probably having a cup of coffee right now. And he doesn't want to be bothered. You know, guy might be 
on the can. Like these are real things that happen. And that adds a humanistic quality to your film, uh, or at least to your writing. And, and Rambo provides a lot of humanistic insights um, that are overlooked. Now there's some very overt ones, you know, Rambo's PTSD, um, which we're going to touch on. Yeah. You know, these things, but there are, there are very subtle things that aren't even commented on that exist. Like Tracel, for example, is a Korean war vet. You wouldn't know that, but he's got the medals on the wall behind him. There's no comment. There's no attention drawn to it. You just sort of nailed it. I mean, and that's why I wanted to talk about this movie because, you know, I think a lot of people think, Oh, it's, it's Stallone. It's Rambo. It's, it's whatever. It's rah, rah, rah. Right. That is what the character becomes in, in 1985 and, and the second one, Rambo first blood part two. And I, we'll, we'll talk more about that later in this, in the show as I want to get into sure. that. But this film is on a whole other level for me. Cause I, I do think it's, it's far superior than anything that comes after that. And I would even say that it's far superior in terms of like, I would put it on a level of many of the other great action films that have been made. And I would say that this film is probably uh, in, in a way, probably pretty influential to influential to a lot of other action filmmakers that followed um, that grew up watching a movie like this. Cause it's, it's sort of a masterclass in terms of the economy of, of filmmaking in terms of how you can move a story forward very efficiently. So that's a great point. It's it number one. It's extremely streamlined. It's ninety three minutes. It's a very tight movie. Um, they they went to the editing bay on a mission, and and you're right. Rambo's not jacked up. Now he's fit. You know. Yeah. Uh, he he yeah. Just certainly doesn't look like he does in Rambo two. Um, is this a top twenty action film for me? Yes, yes. And I honestly believe that. Okay, so this predates Die Hard by what six years. Six years. Okay. No John Rambo, no John McClane, because this action hero gets his ass kicked. He gets beat up. He gets punished. It's brutal. He takes a pounding. Um, it's pretty ugly. It's, uh, he, he does not, you know, just that, that scene in Con Air when Nick Cage gets shot in the arm and just keeps walking. Stop it. Stop. What are you doing? Stop it. That hurts. Okay. That hurts. <laughs> I've been shot in the arm. That hurts. And, and, and so what you have is a, a very realistic portrayal of an action sequence. Um, the, the fall from the tree. He yep. is badly hurt. He, you know he had to break some ribs there. That was just brutal. But he Stallone actually broke ribs in that scene. Precisely. So that paves the way. For, for the John McClane's, the action heroes of, of, of the world who look like ordinary guys. Regular guys. Now, yeah. Stallone's beefier. Bruce Willis is beefier. But at the time, Stallone, Stallone's a little guy, you know, and he's gotten bigger. And Rambo has become a caricature. But that first blood, no. It's streamlined. It's tight. He looks like a wrestler. He doesn't look like a bodybuilder. He looks like a lean and fit wrestler. Um He's compact. He's strong, which from a special forces standpoint, that's what they want. Huge hulking guys. They eat more food. They have to drink more water. They require more sleep. They don't move as fast. More maintenance, more expensive. Absolutely. They also don't float that easily. Yeah. Right. So the smaller you are, the more compact the weapon, 
the better you are as an operative. And this is what, you know, 18 and 19 year olds who are packed in gyms trying to be Navy SEALs don't understand. What I wrote down was like, this is a really tough movie. It's, it's, it's cold, it's gray, dirty. Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's bloody, it's grisly, it's sweaty. And, and they just don't make films like that very often. And I, and I think that in 1982, I think that's why this movie is really meaningful and really important. Cause it's just, it's sort of like, you know, is the, the mid eighties, the Reagan era eighties changed shortly after this. And I'm going to get into that a little bit later with, with Rambo too, and, and everything else that came after that. But this movie sort of stands apart because it was so different. So let's, let's, I want to, I want to do a little bit of a deep dive on this movie. So came out October 22nd, 1982. Um, it's based on the best-selling 72 novel by David Morrill, mm. which I did read. And I, again, Read that at an age where I probably should not have been allowed to, to read that book. Sylvester Stallone is John Rambo and two who I would call heavy hitter supporting actors, the late Brian Dennehy and the late Richard Crenna. Mm. Uh, Dennehy plays um, Will Teasel, the, 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 you know, the sheriff of this town. And Richard Crenna plays um, Colonel Samuel Troutman, who was uh, Rambo's colonel in Vietnam. The film was directed by Ted Kotcheff. $15 million budget. United States gross of 47 million. It was a, you know, I guess a medium hit, certainly not, not as high as other things that ramp uh, that Stallone has done later in his career. It made $125 million worldwide. It was number, number one at the box office for three straight weeks. And that's, that gets back to what I was saying to you earlier as an 11 year old, obviously I was too young to even pay attention to stuff like that. Like now when I became a teenager and then obviously all my years after that, Wondering and, and monitoring what was number one in the box office and how movies did was something I was extremely passionate about. And clearly I was passionate about that as I started working in, in, in a career perspective in, in entertainment. So, but when I was 11, I, I have no recollection. I have, it's like a complete blank slate. Like I don't remember this movie coming out in theaters. I don't remember this movie opening down the road at the, at the Translux theater that I used to work at. Like, it's just like, I don't remember it, you know, but the fact that it was number one for three straight weeks sort of tells you that the movie was kind of a thing, you know, when it came out, it came out, I guess, around maybe five or six months after Rocky three. So it was a big year for Stallone. There were numerous directors and actors attached to this film at, at, at all stages throughout, throughout those 10 years before the film finally came out um, considered directors, Sidney Pollack, yep. Martin Ritt, yep. Mike Nichols was actually once attached to this film. And I can't even fathom that Mike Nichols would have ever directed a movie like first blood. Can you No, that's, that's bizarre. Also, right. Sam Peckinpah. Peckinpah was on the list as well. Um, actors that were considered to play John Rambo at one point or another, Steve McQueen. Okay. That tracks Robert De Niro. Wow. Okay. Clint Eastwood. Sure. Paul Newman. Ugh. Al Pacino. What? So Pacino turned it down. He found the story too dark. Sure. John Travolta, Nick Nolte, Mike, Michael Douglas, and Dustin Hoffman all attached to play Rambo at one point wow. during the development th- during that decade. I know that Chris Christopherson and James Garner were both approached as well. Oh, I didn't I didn't see that. So when when Sam Peckinpah's name started drawing some attention, that's when Christopherson was interested. Steve McQueen is a very interesting choice, having already probably a little bit too old at that point in in the early eighties. I'm thinking maybe. sure, and and definitely could not have pulled off being young enough to have been in Vietnam recently. That exactly. that's, that's not real. Here are the actors that were supposed to play uh, Sheriff Will Teasel, Ooh. who was ended up, ended up being played by Brian Dennehy. But there were, there's a couple here that jump out at me. 
Um, everybody from Robert Mitchum to Lee Marvin, probably both, you know, maybe a little bit too old for the character. But uh, here are the two that I was really fascinated by. Robert Duvall Ooh. and Gene Hackman. Now, listen, I love Brian Denny. I think Brian Denny, he is one of the great actors and he was a phenomenal stage actor. And I think he played Teasel perfectly. So I have no, there's nothing bad for me to say about Brian Dennehy's performance in this film. I agree wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. But I am very intrigued by Robert Duvall and Gene Hackman as Will Teasel. I think that could be really interesting. Well, Gene Hackman did play Will Teasel in Unforgiven. He played him in Unforgiven, he, sure. he was Little Bill in Unforgiven. He was Little Bill. And, yep. and one of the best supporting actors for it because Gene Hackman, he sure he's, he's Gene fucking Hackman. You know, Brian Dennehy's just understood it enough. You don't need that much star power. You really don't. You need you need the everyman because we're talking about the town of was it Hope Oregon or Hope Washington? I yeah. think was it was supposed Hope to be. Oregon. Yeah. yeah, he's supposed to be an everyman. Now Robert Duvall is an interesting choice too. Um, oh man, that's good. That's tough, Robert. Right. Robert. But I mean, Brian Dennehy doesn't command the screen like Duvall does. Or Hackman does. Or Hackman does. At that, at that stage of their careers, I think it might be almost a distraction for an actor to play a character like that as opposed to Dennehy, who's a little bit more understated. The, I would yeah, say. that's true. And, and Dennehy also has the physique for it. He looks like a small-town sheriff. You know, He's a little bit thicker in the waist, still got that barrel chest. You, you obviously can tell he, he knows his way around a bar room. Not a, yeah. not a problem. Um, tough. Just a tough guy, but not star power tough, which I think is ideal. I, 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 I mean, I, I love the casting. What ifs? I, I love that 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 conversation. Oh, that's tough. I could talk about that for hours. But right? so so all right. So director Ted Kotcheff, he yeah. he was attached to the movie. He gets bounced, and then eventually, through all kinds of circumstances, he found his way back to the project. So it was the second time that he was involved that he actually offered it to Stallone. So based on the research, Stallone accepts the movie, the offer, after reading the screenplay over a weekend. Um, as he does with many of his movies, he, he obviously worked on the script a, a great amount and reportedly delivered seven different drafts, you know, ultimately changing quite a bit from the original versions. He made Rambo more sympathetic, um, you know, which is obviously on full display at the end of the movie when we, we sort of kind of, uh, you know, get, get to know Rambo as a character a little bit more when he goes through his emotional breakdown, which we'll talk about later. Um, in the, in the book, Rambo kills a lot of his pursuers. Oh, he does. In the he movie, does. It, he does, yeah. he does. But in, in the, in the movie, it's, you know, he doesn't really technically kill anybody. Now it's not clear if, um, Teasel lives at the end, although the way the movie ends, Teasel is still alive. One police officer, Art Galt does die, but Rambo isn't directly responsible. He's indirectly responsible. Um, so again, like, and again, at the end of the book, Troutman does kill Rambo. So uh, major changes that Stallone brought to that script to make, you know, you know, Rambo a little bit more accessible. I found this really interesting about Troutman. Kirk Douglas was eventually hired to play Troutman. Uh, but just before shooting, he quits the role over a big script dispute. Um, he wanted to retain um, the book's original ending of Rambo and Teasel fatally wounding each other um, and Troutman finishes Rambo with a kill shot. This is what Stallone said about Kirk Douglas. This is a quote. The plan to include Kirk Douglas snowballed into something I never expected. He says to me, here's what I want. At the very end of this movie, I should kill you. The audience sees a cop car driving away 
and as it disappears into the fog, a hand reaches up to the rearview mirror. The camera turns up and we see me. It turns up a bit higher and I'm wearing your headband, end quote. And uh, Stallone was like, no go. This guy's got a whole other kind of take on Colonel Troutman. That led to um, Kirk Douglas walking off the film. They had to scramble quickly and hire Richard Crenna. And I believe he was hired literally days before they started shooting the film. Okay. So Kirk Douglas is, is, is a Hollywood <laughs> legend. Sure. Everyone loves him. One of the, one of the all-time great chins in film. I mean, it's a, just a le- him and Burt Lancaster, like just two legendary chins, like jaws of iron. Um, but that speaks to to a sort of uh, hierarchy within Hollywood, like certain guys command a certain thing. But I love I love the fact that he said no, ki- no, kiss my ass. You don't know that, that the dramatic impact. What are you you're wearing my headband? What, why would you do that? That makes no sense. That makes no sense. You know, like curb your ego, and that's what happens. Is that Stallone at this point hadn't developed the ego that he's re- he's renowned for. And he's getting there. Oh, he's, he's getting right, there. Right, right. The, the 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 audacity to make all these seven scripts. Like, come on, man. Like, what, what are you doing? Um, and then, and then I know that he wanted to buy back the film at one point because it was it was it was much longer, you know, in its original form, and it cast him in a pretty negative light. So we let the story take place. You know, Rambo's off in the woods, right? We let the story take place with these cops and Troutman's introduction and all these things are going on. You'd mentioned something earlier too. Uh, the film is, is, it's all earth tones. Yep. It's completely overcast. Very darkly shot. Everything is stuck in gray. And that's also where John Rambo is stuck. John is stuck in the gray. Um, that's interesting. I never thought about it that way. So, Obviously, they filmed in the Pacific Northwest, and it's gray, especially that time of year. Okay, that's easy enough. Now, the, the book was set in Kentucky. Okay. Um, it probably just as easy to shoot in Kentucky as it is up in Oregon and Washington. Okay. Or actually, it was shot in British Columbia. It was, yeah. Probably for the tax break. I get that. Um, you still got the mountains. You still got rivers. The, the setting probably wouldn't change a whole hell of a lot. Um, but what you do get is that grayness, that area of moral ambiguity. John Rambo is not a hero. He's not. Um, and now we start getting our heroes mixed to us in a, in a way where well, they are complex. They, they stop being pure protagonists and heroes, and now they become antiheroes. They yeah. start flirting with that, that moral gray area. Graphic novels and comic books have been doing this for, for much longer because it's actually easier there. Um, but and th- and this would make sense why heroes like Clint Eastwood and Burt Lancaster would want to attach themselves to this because they can be the 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 the, the true archetype of a hero. Stallone's made a career out of playing antiheroes. John Rambo is he's a he's an he's a drifter. Um, he's he's stuck. He's very much you know a Ronin. You know, a masterless samurai. Um, and he's just trying to find his buddies. That's all he wants to do. He's just trying to find his buddies. And he's stuck in the rain. And when we first meet him, you know, it's a bright, sunny day. It's a bright, yeah. sunny day. And he finds out one of the last buddies he's got left alive 
is dead because of Agent Orange and the cancer that it gave him, you know, and he, he meets, you know, he meets his, his old war buddy's wife and their kids. And she's, she's not interested in having this discussion at all. No. And then it just goes gray and then it starts to rain. And to draw that comparison back to Unforgiven, when it rains, it pours and it starts to rain in Rambo. And that's when all hell breaks loose. You talked about the, the original rough cut. A couple of interesting things about this movie. One is apparently the production ran over schedule so much so that Richard Crenna's role in the movie had to be cut because um, had it gone any longer, they would have had to have paid him more. So the reason that Troutman is not in the film a whole hell of a lot is because of financial reasons. That blew my mind when I read that. Secondly, you talked about the fact that the original cut of this movie came in between three to three and a half hours. And Stallone, as you just referenced, he, he, he thought it was terrible. Yeah. So much so that he thought the movie was unwatchable. He was sick to his stomach. That he contemplated trying to buy the rights to the movie and destroying the film, never making it see the light of day because it was so unwatchable. So obviously, after heavy re-editing, the movie was cut down to 93 minutes, as we talked about earlier. Ultimately, that was the version that was released in theaters. And they even reshot the ending in March of 82, a mere six months before the film is released. They reshot the ending because the original ending was not working. So I say that to say that I, I can't believe that there was an op, there was a possibility that First Blood was never going to be released because it was so unwatchable. Can you imagine a world without First Blood, a world without John Rambo, who becomes this huge pop culture icon three years later with Rambo 2 in the Reagan 80s? Like, can you imagine that it was that close to not ever seeing the light of day? Amazing. He had his own toy line after Rambo 2. There was a a series of toys marketed for Rambo. I mean, back in the 80s. Video games. Oh, the whole bit. Oh, my God. And. We would be deprived of one of the all-time great action heroes um, or anti-heroes, as I, as I said earlier. But also, it literally changed the way we made action movies. I mean, there aren't any huge, massive explosions, nope. right? I mean, The ending is a little bit, but that's about it, right? Right, but that's actually kind of realistic because he's in like an ammo warehouse. Yeah, so he blows yeah. some things up, okay? But it's not this over-the-top, man-on-fire, you know – we're not looking at like a, a, a Tom Cruise flick here. You know, it's a small town. It's going to draw all the attention in the town. Of course it is. Um, everything is deeply understated. But here's what's really cool about this. You mentioned some of the budget constrictions with, with regards to, to Krenna. I think some of the great pieces of popular entertainment that we get are as a direct result of being tied with one hand behind your back financially or strapped with your limitations. I mean, Kevin Smith, it's a great point. Kevin Smith made clerks on, on credit cards. Yep. He, he built his entire career and it's a good one on credit cards, you know, um, famously the, the Kingsman cut Louie Louie for 500 bucks on one take. Cause that's all they could afford. So if you listen to that last, you know, you listen to the cut of, of Louie Louie, um, there are mistakes. The drummer drops his drumstick at one point. The lead singer comes in, you know, a, a measure too early on the last verse, but it's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, there are flaws in the movie. Um, there are flaws in First Blood, but that all contributes to the fact that everybody had to turn in the best possible performance they could under the gun with 
intense pressure to, to do this thing. And what we get is you said $15 million made 59 something domestically, but 125 million worldwide. worldwide. That's a hell of a return on your, that's almost, that's almost 10, a thousand percent return on your investment. That's incredible. That's the loan at that stage of his career, you know, and, and not many actors would have been able to open a movie like that. Right. You know, a film, a, this kind of film that's that dark and, you know, nuanced. Can the special effects give me something that's gritty um, in, in that regard? You know, there's there's a lot of debt to be paid to something like The Deer Hunter, which we've talked about before. Sure. Um, you know, I know you're a big fan of Deliverance. It's a very gritty thing to it. There is a realism to it. And again, it's not a war film. But it's the after effects of war with war uh, elements. War. The, the impact of the war, which we're going to get into. So before we take a break, um, I thought it was interesting. I just wanted to uh, read two quick um, resp- critical responses to First Blood. Ooh. The New York Times film critic Janet Maslin dire- um, described this movie as a fierce, agile, hollow-eyed hero. Um, you know, he's tormented. He's misunderstood. He's amazingly resourceful. Uh, but she actually praised the film's story for its en- energy and its ingenuity. Conversely, Variety, which is, you know, a trade paper, called the movie a mess <laughs> and criticized its ending for not providing a proper resolution for the main character. Uh, I do not agree with Variety. I'll leave, it, I'll leave it at that. I do think the movie actually had a great resolution. I mean, it's a bit open-ended. Obviously, Rambo does not, um, you know, he doesn't walk away scot-free in, in, in what he does. There are, there are consequences. Yes. And he, and he has to pay for those consequences, but, um, for his decisions, I should say. But I, I do, I actually do agree with Janet Maslin on this film. Listen, I want to, I want to dive into this movie a little bit further. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and get into it. Deal. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by our good friends at the Waffle Company, the first ever get and give pet bed company in the world, which means for every bed sold, they donate a bed to a shelter dog in need. You know, I have to admit something. I have become that guy who basically uses social media to simply post pictures of my dogs. It's true. Sure, I may plug this podcast across social time to time and have been known to express my disappointment in another unwanted Hollywood reboot. I can't believe they are remaking Roadhouse. But let's be honest, what I enjoy doing most is posting adorable pictures of my two boxers. And most of those photos feature my girls lounging on their waffle beds. Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure K-pop cotton, which is lightweight, hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. And the beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. We all love our dogs, and if you like watching them sleep just like I do, get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can sleep better at night, which should make you sleep better at night. But nobody wants to see a photo of you sleeping. Just your dog, okay? You can order them at waffleco.com, just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Buy one today and use the promo code Dennis20 to receive a 20% discount off your purchase. The Waffle Company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the show. Okay, Jason, I'm going to draw First Blood. I think this is Sylvester Stallone's best film, hands down. Now, some people are going to argue Rocky which I can absolutely appreciate given its Oscar winning pedigree. 
But I think it's first blood. I think it's the best work he has ever done. What do you think? I'm not messing around, Jason. I'm coming right out of the commercial break. But man, some, uh, you are you. Wow, <laughs> there's some hot takes. Okay, all right. Okay, let me see. Let's let's discuss some of Stallone's better films. Okay, uh, I got to put Copland somewhere in the top five. Copland is a great it's, it's performance. Up there. Um, Deeply understated by Stallone, not what you would right. expect from him. With, a, with also, to be fair, a, a monster ensemble cast in Copland. It's just it's Showtime's been playing Copland for like every day for the last three months, and I've watched it more than I should. And I agree with you; it's a great it's a great Stallone performance. I mean, Harvey Keitel, Robert De Niro, it's it, Ray Liotta, just his second best performance behind Goodfellas. It's Copland's a good film. You know, one of the one of those films that we were talking about that's that's that slips underneath the radar, that is just deceptively really good. Uh, Copland's on that list. Rocky is obviously in contention. That's got to be – Of course. It's going to be on his tombstone, you know. Yep. It's, it's, it's when, when he passes away at the Oscars, that's going to be, you know. I get that, and I don't disagree with that. It, it probably should be the movie – that they will show the clip on when they show all the people. No, I, 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 I think to... I agree. I, I, I like your hot take a lot, and I do think it's his best film. There are like little little decisions that Stallone makes in this movie. And, and, and it, the fascinating thing about this performance is that he rarely speaks in this movie. It's true. It's a very muscular, it's a very physical performance. It is. But I, he, he makes choices in this performance that I just don't see him doing much in his career. And even like when he's being interrogated by the cops, when he's in the police station, like, you, you could tell this guy's not right. You, you could tell that there's something off with him. And he's, as you just said a little while ago, the gray, right? There's, he's in this gray phase of his life. And I thought that's not easy to portray in a film like this. I thought Stallone, here's what I'll say. I don't think, I can't even imagine anybody else but Sylvester Stallone playing Rambo. If I was 42 and 82, I probably would have given you a couple of different answers to that. Um, but no. No, I, I, I at this juncture, and when you look at the list of of, of Hollywood stars back then, um, it was different. The eighties, especially the early eighties, was a very strange time. Um, filmmakers were taking some wild chances that they wouldn't ever get a you know a chance to take again. Uh, but with that said, you know you mentioned something. There's something not right with this guy, David Caruso. Who plays one of the cops? I, sure. I think he plays like Mitch or something like that. Mitch, he plays Mitch. He, he, yep. he says, "There's something wrong with this guy. Do you not see what's happening here?" So, they, like right there, there's a sort of moral voice to to the film. I think why I say that this is the best thing he's ever done is like, listen, Stallone has done. You you referenced. You didn't even finish your list, but you referenced Copland, and, and there's a, there's a few things that he's done that are certainly noteworthy. But I think this movie has. There's an intelligence to this film. There's a substance to this to this movie that is very rare for genre movies like this, for action yeah, films like yeah. this. And I think, and a lot of that doesn't really even come through until the very end when when Rambo has his breakdown, which I'll, we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But this movie has several interesting themes that are sort of at, at play here. There's the PTSD piece to it, what war does to our soldiers, um, and you obviously can speak to that better than a lot better than I can how soldiers are, you know, leveraged and, and exploited yeah. by the war machine, sure. right? Which which this movie is clearly talking about how soldiers are treated when they when or, you know, how the Vietnam war soldiers were treated when they returned to America and and that is clearly uh, you know the, the focus of Rambo's speech at the very end of this film. 
But like that, those, that's what I'm talking about. Those are the themes that are at play in this movie that your garden variety action movie doesn't necessarily have. No, because, because it's a very clear, it's a very clear good and white Rambo. Rambo acts completely out of proportion to what's happening to him, but that's incidental to how he's being treated. Yes. Right. The violence in this film is, uh, it's not what I would refer to as pornographic violence. Right. Nope. Pornographic violence serves only to exploit the idea of seeing something gruesome happen on the screen. It doesn't serve yes. the plot. Scorsese and Tarantino have caught a lot of chaff in their careers for being violent. But the violence in their films is a consequence or the violence itself has a consequence. It's incidental to the characters. Right. And so once we realize that, we start thinking, hey. If Tiesel had just been kinder, more interested as a fellow vet in taking care of this guy, we wouldn't have had this problem to begin with. He's abused, he's mistreated, and he responds, okay, a little out of pocket, okay, a lot out of pocket, but we understand the nature. And Tiesel should have known, damn well should have known, this is a POW, or could be possibly be a POW. When they took his shirt off and he's completely scarred up, like, okay, hold on. A reasonable sheriff just said, okay, everyone just relax. Let's let's put the shiny objects down. <laughs> put our egos to the side. Right, right. Let's 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 not make any sudden movements. Let's be cool. Maybe maybe we go get a you know a court psychologist in here, you know, and we sit down and we talk about ways out of this situation. He did not choose to do that. He did not make that choice. And the violence that happens to him and his his team of deputies is a direct result of his choice. And if we're going to talk about you know accountability, Tiesel's on the line for a lot. He well, that's what makes this film work. It's the duality of these three lead characters. You got Rambo. Rambo is you know he's he's not painted as a as a sadist. He's tormented, misunderstood, very resourceful. But again, a a victim of war, a a pawn of of the government, right? He obviously goes off 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 the deep end in this movie and certainly makes decisions that he he shouldn't have made. So he's he's this character that makes a bad decision. But we as the viewer watching First Blood root for this guy. I mean, tell me that you don't root for Rambo every step of the way when you're watching these guys down when he runs into the town at the end and he's blowing up the gas station and, and the outpost. He's like, you You want to see this guy succeed, which is really, that's a tricky thing for a director to pull off for a viewer. When you when you know this guy is wrong, yet you're rooting for him. Then you've got Teasel, right, who's this 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 badass sheriff. I, I don't question the fact that this guy cares for his people. He cares for his community. He's probably, he, you know, he served this country in Korea. Sure. He, he probably, at his core, a good person, right? right? But makes bad decisions with Rambo, treats this guy, beats this guy up in the, in the station, shouldn't have done it. And then you've got... Troutman, who you know, and and I want to I want to play a clip in a minute from the, the the very first scene when Troutman comes into this film and he's talking about Rambo's background and how he made Rambo, not God. And like you could tell that this guy gets off on the fact that Rambo is is causing problems in this town because yes. he created he created this guy. He's proud of it. He also knows this guy is doing something that's you know completely irresponsible and just wrong. Right from from, from a tactical standpoint, he's limitlessly thrilled with what Rambo's done. He's got the entire National Guard after this guy. He's got the whole town on high alert. This is one man. 
right? And Troutman, like, from a military standpoint, like, he's proud of this human being, you know? But also, he has a sentimental tie to him, right? Because they served together. He trained him. So there's that. So Troutman's trying to overcome that border, right? Whereas Tiesel is trying very hard Actually, he's not trying very hard to put his own ego aside because he wants to maintain control because he's the sheriff and God damn it, this is his town and people are going to follow the rules of law and order, even though Tiesel himself jumps way the fuck out of line. He's way out of line. There's that great scene in the tent shortly after they meet where, where Trapman and Tiesel meet where he says, if a prisoner you know, is being mistreated, then the prisoner comes to me. No prisoner comes to the sheriff and says, I'm being mistreated. Who's going to do that? That's not he's real. Not- that's not no. real. And he knows it's not real, you know, but he's using it as, as, a, as a, a valid excuse to get out, which, you know, we've seen echoed in modern day. Let's let's listen to what Troutman says about yeah, Rambo. And, yeah, and yeah. Introductory scene. Oh, this is so good. Uh, so I'm going to get chills. Rambo's a civilian now. He's my problem. I don't think you understand. I didn't come here to rescue Rambo from you. I came here to rescue you from him. Well, we all appreciate your concern, Colonel. I will try to be extra careful. I'm just amazed that he allowed any of your posse to live. Is that right? Strictly speaking, he slipped up. You're lucky to be breathing. That's just great. Colonel, you came out here to find out why one of your machines blew a gasket. You don't seem to want to accept the fact that you're dealing with an expert in guerrilla warfare. With a man who's the best with guns, with knives, with his bare hands. A man who's been trained to ignore pain, ignore weather, to live off the land, to eat things and to make a bully go puke. In Vietnam, his job was to dispose of enemy personnel, to kill, period. Win by attrition. Well, Rambo was the best. I, I love that sequence. That's one of the, it's one of my most quotable scenes from the movie. The other thing about Troutman, Jason, that I thought was really interesting is when they, when the, when the uh, national guard comes in, right. These are a bunch of freaking, you know, yahoos that work at CBS on the weekend. And these guys come in and, and, you know, they, they were specifically told by Teasel to not use firepower against Rambo yet. They do. Sure. And they basically, they blow him up in this, in this cave. Right. So, you know, Teasel and Troutman get up there. They take the helicopter up there and, and, you know, Troutman, or Teasel, I should say, is all pissed off that these guys killed Rambo. Yet Troutman stands there and he knows he taught this guy. He knows that Rambo is still alive. And there's a shot. And I think you know what I'm talking about. There's a shot on on Troutman when they, they show the cave and you can kind of you see some of the smoke coming up and they cut back to his face. And he's got like this grin like he knows that Rambo is still alive. And that is like, that is really fascinating for a character. He knows this guy, you know, did something just, just terrible to these, to these police officers. And he hunted these guys down yet. He's kind of happy for him that he's still alive. Yes. Yes, he is. Cause he's proud of him. And there's a certain ego there. Um, if you've ever trained or taught somebody how to do a thing and they go on to exceed your, your, your wildest expectations, it makes you proud. And in this regard, as a professional combatant, Colonel Troutman's proud and he has to dial that in a little bit. Um, and he does that, that bar sequence is, is a really heartfelt moment. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's a very important scene to the film at large. When he and uh, he is a little talking. Right. Yeah. When they, when they finally sit down, uh, you know, 
Trotman's, they make peace. Right. Yeah. Trotman's drinking a beer or something like that. And, you know, Tiesel orders. I remember this specifically. He orders wild turkey. Um, <laughs> they start having a conversation. And it's particularly interesting because Tiesel's a Korean War vet. Trotman's a colonel. So it stands to reason that he was still in service during the Korean War. Right. Um, I forget what his ribbons look like. And that, that could tell me specifically. But... If the guy was a colonel during Vietnam, he was almost certainly an officer during the Korean War. wasn't that far back. Um, they have a conversation. And what's interesting about this is that oftentimes veterans can't have a really honest heart-to-heart conversation um, outside of a drinking establishment. It's what you do. It's just kind of understood that we're going to have a drink and we're going to talk and there are there's certain barroom etiquette that's involved, you know, no religion, no politics, things like this. Interesting. Um, they're both going to be gentlemen about this because they are having a drink and it's the idea of having a drink that settles these two guys down. They bring their voices down. They talk like human beings. They address each other um, in an unaggressive manner. You know, a little bit of reverence on both sides. Sure, yeah. they're both seated. They they have respect for the other's occupation. You know, Tiesel being a former army soldier, he was in fact army. That's an army distinguished service cross on the wall, along with a silver mm-hmm. star and a purple heart. He's no stranger to combat. He gets it. Troutman, he's a professional. He has nothing to prove to anybody. He's a Green Beret. He leads the Green Beret, you know, battalion. He has nothing to prove to anybody, let alone a hick town in Oregon or Washington. He doesn't have anything to prove. They're just trying to understand each other. And they're talking about a person that one knows intimately and the other doesn't know well at all. And Troutman's trying to give him the playbook. He's trying to save him. He's trying to give Tiesel the playbook on how to deal with this guy. And he's trying to save his boy at the same time. Which is, I mean, you're playing both sides of the fence. Troutman is really morally ambiguous here. Absolutely. And I want to talk about the ending, but give me 30 seconds. I know we're probably running way behind on this this episode. But um, can we just talk about for a second the, the sequence when when uh, Rambo hunts down, the, the you know, Teasel and his men? Oh, my God. I was hoping you would bring this up. Probably like, like the 30-minute mark of this film, right? Rambo's on the loose, and he hunts these guys down. It's almost dark. And, you know, and it's these these tall trees and it's dark and rainy and muddy. And like I I have never seen a sequence in an action movie like this before. Not only like they would never make this today, that you would never see a guy hunt down cops. First of all, like this is not right. That's right. Just not something you would see in 2022. It's sacrosanct. So, like, you don't do that. Right. You just yeah. don't see that. today. But like the fact that like Rambo is hunting these guys down and he's using his wit and his, his ingenuity, as Janet Maslin said earlier, and he's, he's got these elaborate traps. Yes. What, what an unbelievable like six minutes of this film. Like it's terrifying. It, and, well, and, it really is. But it proves something. But they don't get the point. The point is, he could kill them any time he wants. Yep. He, they, they have walked onto the master's court. I could have killed them all. I could have killed you. Right? And he, he says it. He's, he's overt with it. He doesn't overtly end anybody's life. You can make a case about when he throws the rock and the helicopter crashes and, and I think his buddy Sam falls out. Yeah. But Sam was, was malevolent and malicious and 
not a likable character at all. Bad person. He was a bad person. And we were yep. happy to see him go. Right? Which is also a really interesting trick of screenwriting and directorial direction. We have to make a cop that's so unlikable that we root for his death. Yeah. Right? It's not easy to do. Well, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier, and it reminds me, Jonathan Demme's direction in Silence of the Lambs, at the end of the film, we are actively rooting for a cannibal. I'm having an old friend for dinner. And you're right. you're with it. You're like, yeah, he, Dr. Chilton's an asshole. He's got to go. You know, <laughs> Sam was an asshole. He just he was malicious and, and, and overly aggressive, and he wanted to hurt people. And we don't want that. We don't need that in our police officers' force. You know, there, there's a lot of echoes from a social justice standpoint to this day about what the cops are doing to John Rambo. You know, they don't have training in this. They've never seen a guy like this. He's, he's practically feral. They take his clothes off to give him a bath, and he's cut to ribbons. And it's like, you know, and again, David Caruso brings it up. He's like, something you... Why are you going to take a piece of sharpened steel to this guy's neck? He's going to freak, man. What are you doing? And so we play in that realm. That guy with the rifle, he's got to go. But but Rambo doesn't directly kill anybody to begin with. But then he's pushed. And he says it, but you pushed me. You know, he has the capability. He can anytime he wants to just end lives. He makes a conscious choice not to. And that's often overlooked you know he, yeah. he could do this anytime he wants i want to talk about the ending um let's play um i'm not going to play the entire clip because it's too long but i want to play a clip of the ending this is the big speech that stallone gives mm. at the end of the film it's over johnny it's over nothing is over nothing you just don't turn it off it wasn't my war you asked me i didn't ask you and i did what i had to do to win but somebody wouldn't let us win then I come back to the world, and I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they to protest me, huh? Who are they? Unless they've been me and been there and know what the hell they're yelling about. It was a bad time for everyone, Rambo. It's all in the past now. For you! For me, civilian life is nothing. In the field, we had a coat of honor. You watch my back, I watch yours. Back here, there's nothing. You're the last of an elite group. Don't end it like this. Back there, I can fly a gunship. I can drive a tank. I was in charge of million-dollar equipment. Back here, I can't even hold the job. Fucking guys! Ah! I can't. Oh, God. As a viewer, I feel like this scene is so... Um, it's so profound because it's so unexpected. I and mean, you're watching this film and this guy's being chased and you think he's dead. And then all of a sudden he comes back to the town and you know, you don't see this film playing out the way it does in the last five minutes where Rambo has this, this catharsis. He has this emotional breakdown to the guy that sort of created him, his, his Colonel. It's not a happy ending, but as I said, it's a cathartic one. And I think, I think the entire film boils down to these last few minutes. And I don't think the movie works without, this sequence. I mean, do you feel the same? Going back to your comment earlier, Stallone was never better. Right? This right here, that scene right there, Stallone was never better. 
Never better. He he actually said, and this is a quote, there are four or five moments in an actor's career where they drop all their guards and they let the scene and character completely take them. And I, you know, and I think that performance in that scene is one that he could proudly point to, right? I mean, is there anything that he's done in his career that was better than those five or six minutes? No, that's that's his Hall of Fame clip. Right? That clip stands out from all the other action films he's ever done. Because there, totally. there is a gripping humanity there that is impossible to ignore. It is up front and center. It's a clearly damaged human being who has suffered tremendously and in ways that most ordinary folks cannot possibly articulate. And Stallone brings it with every fiber of his being. I am utterly convinced. First of all, it's interesting that Orion Pictures, the, the distributor of this film, they actually were hesitant to include that scene in the final cut of this movie. They, they were actually going to cut Rambo's breakdown from this original film. And I guess it was Stallone who had a fight tooth, tooth and nail to argue that the soldiers needed their story told in, in, in this, in this movie. So I, I can't even imagine that there was a version of this film that that, that that scene is not included, but going back to what you just said about, you know, this, this soldier's breakdown and Jason, I have to imagine that given what you've done and your experiences in the Navy, that you've seen some, some bad shit. And I, I, I know, sure. you know, again, wait, that's a whole other conversation. That's a different podcast, but I guess I'll ask you this. Cause I, you know, PTSD is something that Hollywood has done in, in a lot of movies. Um, and I could, you know, I could even list, you know, some of the films that, you know, that come to mind, Born on the Fourth of July, The Hurt Locker, American Sniper, more recent films, but, you know, The Deer Hunter and, and Taxi Driver and many yeah. of the others that actually predated First Blood. But do you feel like, I guess, Rambo's breakdown, is that is that accurate? Is that something that you feel like Hollywood got right? Do you feel like Hollywood gets PTSD right? Hollywood, by and large, misses the mark. I'll say six, maybe seven out of ten. That scene is a 10 for 10. Inter- really? So you feel like that that's spot on? That's it. That, 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 that is 100% it. I, I dealt with this. What about that scene makes you think that? Okay, so let's talk about what exactly Rambo is discussing in that scene. He's talking about his buddies. He's talking about coming back home and you know rebuilding this car, right? Yep. These things that that... Soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, Coast Guardsmen talk about when they when when they're overseas are a way to keep them connected to their other life. And I do mean the other life because there's what you do out there and then you come back home. Right. Um, For all of its problems, the Hurt Locker does a really good job of that out there. He is exceptional here. He's lost. He's lost. He's distracted. He's a mediocre husband. He's a mediocre father. In that moment, Rambo connects the human elements of his buddies. He doesn't talk about the stuff that they did. He doesn't talk about what their ranks were or, or where they trained or where they served together. He talks about working on cars. He talks about the things that they wanted to do, their goals and their aspirations, because they were stuck in this in-between. And the in-between was the Vietnam War. And he is relating his experiences on a humanistic level because he would connect with his buddies on a very deep personal level 
even if it was something like just rebuilding a car, which is something that happens every day in America, and all of that is taken away from him. And he is the only one left. He doesn't have anybody left on his team that he can talk to. So there's nobody really that can understand what he went through in the moment. Now, he can talk to Troutman, but Troutman wasn't there on those missions, right? So he doesn't have that shared context. Troutman trained him, which is different. It's like having a conversation with your teacher as opposed to having a conversation with your classmate. Rambo can't relate to anybody anymore. He, he can't. And in and, and, you know, subsequent films, we see that he, he lives alone. He goes out alone. He does things alone because he's got nobody left that he can relate to, to share those experiences. You know, he didn't, I can't confirm this, but, you know, it's, you know, an unanswerable question. One gets the feeling that Rambo served several years in Vietnam. And back then it wasn't a six month rotation. You did a year. Right, And if you re-upped, you did another year. There are guys who served three, four, five tours in Vietnam, so that became your life. Like, think about spending your entire college career in a combat zone. You know? The, your, your dorm buddies become your best friends on the planet, even if you don't even like them. Um, and so that that's what's real. And so he's relating this human experience he had about, you know, playing with his guys and working on cars with his buddies, because that's a human thing. It doesn't involve the tools of war, the nature of warfare. He just wants to get back to being a human being again, and nobody will let him. So we see this over and over again, but his breakdown um, is completely vulnerable. It's, um, he's helpless. Um, he's snapped. It echoes all the way back to the first scene in the film. You know, he's just walking into town to, to link up with an old buddy. And he finds out his buddy's gone, and that's the last of them. I'll say this before we wrap, because I want to be respectful of your time. But, like... No, no, don't don't be respectful of my time. We, we, we can go as long as you want. We'll go a little bit longer, and, that, and that's totally fine. Here's what it is for me that I, I'm disappointed about with the other movies that came out after this film. Is that First Blood... Has a moral compass, right? Yeah. This this film, like right or wrong, every character is on either side of right or wrong, and we just talked about that a little while ago. That is why I think First Blood is a superb achievement for me. Yes. Now, Rambo. Rambo comes three years later, right? And I'll tell you, like I'm 14 years old in 1985, and I fucking love Rambo: First Blood Part Two. Yeah, you do. James, yeah, you James, do. James Cameron co-wrote the movie. I'm not even sure if you know that. And like. It's, I was 14 and I was, you know, I'm into it. I bought the black camo pants and I wanted the knife, which I wasn't allowed to get. But like I had Rambo posters up. I was all in. And, and for what it was, it was a, you know, it's Reagan era, as I said earlier. It's escapism. Yeah. It's just pure action. Rambo in the sequel and the movie that after that, he's redeemed, right? He is transformed from this damaged soul yes. that you just talked about into this hero, right? Right. He goes back to get the guys that were left behind and, and you know, he blows everybody away. He's got the bow and arrow. And as a as an action spectacle, it's fine. Sure. And it's, it's, it's entertaining. It's yep. it's harmless. It's like it's a throwaway action movie. And I, I loved it at 14. Mm -hmm. At 51... I don't love it. And it's funny. You referenced Indiana Jones earlier and, and, and Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and the episode that my brother was on. I liken Rambo 2 
to the sequel, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, where it, it, it goes to the other end of the spectrum. And I'm not dinging Temple of Doom. It's a fine action movie for what it is, but it's it's harmless. It's a throwaway escapist action film, yes. as was Rambo 2, but nothing really meaningful and deep about it. And Rambo 2 was the same. And that's why First Blood and Raiders resonate to me mm. as much as they do because they had something to say. Well, it completely makes sense. And, I mean, they cashed on the success. Yes, they they saw that they could you know make you know almost nine times or almost ten times what they spent on the film. Okay, right. cool. Let's double down, right? We'll get him a personal trainer and a personal chef, and he'll be shredded, you know. Um, which was actually hilariously poked fun at in Tropic Thunder, which was absolutely <laughs> you know like like Rocky, you know, like Rambo two when he's you know more shredded than a julienne salad. You know, he looks great. Um, and he does. He looks great. He obviously spent time on his physique, um, you know. And there's some cornball speeches that are that are you know when he's talking to the to the to the young Vietnamese woman he's on the boat with about being expendable. Um, yep. Now there's some truth to that, but it's not delivered with nearly the intensity that that end speech in in First Blood is delivered with. Um, you know, shit blows up. It's it's outrageous. You know, we're we're in a, an exotic location, so of course he's shirtless and he's sweating like a champion. Um, it's America versus Russia. It's 1985. I yeah, mean, it makes sense. Yeah, right? of course, yeah. of course. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, you you get you know you, Hollywood wants to cash in their chips, and it was you know the first script was built off of a book. The second script was built off of the idea of cashing in on on making it was, a sequel. It was IP. It you was know, IP. Hundred percent. You know, let's make some money and. You know, Stallone's made a run for it. He's made it a very successful franchise. You know, the the film set in Cambodia, uh, Rambo, just Rambo. Um, that was just a gory masterpiece. Like that was just <laughs> that was just. You know what? Let's just give him a budget of seventy five million dollars and let him blow up as much shit as he wants. It's fine. It's fine. You know, Rambo 2 is sort of a reflection of what Hollywood does to Vietnam films in general in the 80s. I mean, yeah. I, went, I went back and looked at this, right? Rambo comes out in 82. Um, Uncommon Valor comes out in 83. And that's actually the same director. Ted Kotcheff directed that film, too. And that's another story about guys, Gene Hackman, go, guys go back to Vietnam to get some guys that were left behind. But then after that is where it really starts to change. You've got Missing in Action, which is Chuck Norris, oh, which is sure. definitely exploitive, right? You've got serious things like Platoon in 86. You've got Full Metal Jacket, Stanley Kubrick in 87. Yeah. I mean, you've got Good Morning Vietnam, Casualties of War. All these films in a six or seven year window, some of them serious, some of them fairly lighthearted, and maybe a couple of that are in between. But it's amazing to me, like the run that Hollywood goes on in the mid to late 80s. And I do think First Blood was sort of the catalyst for a lot of that. Oh, I agree completely. I think, I think First Blood ushered in that idea of Hey, here's a new idea that works. Um, it's an original concept. Um, it's ambiguous. It's it operates in that moral gray area. We usher in the era of the true antihero, right? Um, and 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 this is why some of those old stars that we talked about wouldn't work. Burt Lancaster, Clint Eastwood, Steve McQueen. Well, McQueen definitely operates in the antihero mold, but. Um, you know, those guys were James Gardner. Those guys were stars. Those guys were always the good guy and good. We're not talking about John Wayne war films where it's a very clear good versus evil here, right? 
Um, that's not the issue. We're talking about things that leave viewers unsettled. But it left them unsettled enough to come back and probably see the film again. So Hollywood has to get a template first before you know something really hits. And it's usually from the independent world. You know, or or a low budget flick in which you know First Blood was for the time a low budget flick, because um, they're operating under constrictions and they have to make a thing work and they have to tell a really really good story. And First Blood tells an incredible story, and they double down on it, and then they then they remove the moral ambiguity, make it good versus evil. Boom, here we go. It's very black and white after First Blood, which is why I, I think it's interesting that this is the only character, I think, or the only film, I should say, that Stallone ever did that was was that gray, you know? And 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 after that, he was always on the on the good side of, of the character. He never really was a... He never played a character I can even think of again that was morally ambiguous like John Rambo was in the first film. No, actually, now that you mention it, I don't think I, I, I can think of one either. Um I mean, when Stallone makes a movie, we all know about it. So nothing he ever did slipped under the radar. But no, it, it is the idea of taking a chance on something. Um, and when they made their money back wholesale and then some, yeah, they really doubled down on it. But for itself, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's tight. There's you know, there's not really a moment where you want to get up and go to the bathroom in this film. Nope. You know, maybe, maybe when he's in the cave hunting the pig with the rats, right? Sure. Maybe that's when you, you know, when you go to the bathroom. Um, but, but all those scenes and, you know, and the scenes you'd mentioned um, fighting to keep the scene in, right? Stallone had done this once before uh, in Rocky. And for me, the best scene in Rocky is the night before the fight. Uh, he gets up, and because at, at that point, him and Adrian are still in different beds, right? Which is telling. And he, he goes over to her, and he's, he's explaining what he wants, what his desired outcome for the fight is. Rocky doesn't want to win the fight. Rocky just wants to go the distance. He honestly does not care if he wins or loses, he just wants to prove it, to prove it to himself. He wants to go the distance with Apollo Creed because no one's ever done it before. That's all he wants. And that's what he's most proud of. That's what the Yo Adrian, I did it part is. He went the distance with the heavyweight champion of the world, right? He had to fight to keep that scene in because Hollywood wanted to cut that shit. And that's the best scene in the movie. <laughs> he's so completely vulnerable and so completely honest you know, and fighting to keep the PTSD breakdown scene in First Blood, it's, it's, it's essential because that explains to you who this guy is and it creates a measure of sympathy for him that you might not have had before. Now, you get an idea of it through the flashback sequences that we see, right? Um, but in creating sympathy for him, you're like, oh my God, like this guy's just been brutalized in service to his country. How can I possibly be upset with that? Yeah, we're all responsible for our own decision-making. But sometimes our decision-making process is broken by a flawed mechanism. And that flawed mechanism is the post-traumatic stress that a guy gets from having experienced that. 
And it's very Jason. You you talked about going the distance that you know Stallone or uh, Rocky goes in that in that film, and you know, and I I want to tie it back and get a little corny here, but you know, you went the distance in your service to this country. Yeah, you know, and yeah. you know, twenty four years is nothing to sniff at, and that, <laughs> that is um that is impressive, and you you've got my respect. And I and I was thinking about what I wanted to have you on. I wanted to make sure that it was right. It was the right topic and something that was a little bit more thoughtful and meaningful because of, of what you've seen and what you've done. And mm. um, to tie it to a movie, obviously it kind of trivializes that a little bit, as I said earlier, but, um, but I appreciate you coming on. And I do think this was the right decision. It was the right topic. And um, the big question I have is what are we going to talk about next? Cause clearly you're going to come back because, you know, I, I can't imagine that you're not coming back to talk about something else. And maybe I'll let you have uh carte blanche of what movie is next oh man I'll give, you, I, I, I'll, I'll give you that power how's that sound any, any anytime you want to talk about this i am i am game um well it's it's uh it's timely let me say that um this conversation we're having right now um on the e of you know tail end of october 4th um i'm going through um kind of a tough spot right now um and and here's what that tough spot is um, so almost 10 years ago, actually a little over 10 years ago, um, I was admitted, uh, into, uh, Bethesda, the mental health ward in Bethesda, um, for a suicide attempt. And, uh, I spent uh, a month, um, in Bethesda and then I went out to incidentally Oregon to another mental health treatment. Um, so I spent two months going through mental health treatment because I did in fact try to kill myself. Um, and that experience in and of itself is worthy of a novel that's in progress. That said, after I got home and I got reacclimated to, to Navy life again and being back in, you know, my surroundings, um, what I noticed and realized was that a lot of people, people close to me, family members, um, family friends, would use that experience to talk about themselves. Um, they would tell me things like, uh, well, I would never do that. Okay, that's, that's a great way. Good for you. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, I feel better about myself immediately because I'm not you. Cool, awesome. Um, exactly. they would elaborate, um, how their relationship with, with, uh, with God, uh, wouldn't allow them to do that. Okay. Well, I don't have that same relationship. I, they would use this platform and they would use my experiences and my thoughts and my feelings, um, as an excuse to talk about themselves. That's awful. Right. And to this day, uh, I have a very difficult time, um, sharing my emotions and my feelings um, because not invariably, but a lot of the time the people I'm talking to choose to make this about themselves. And so when that happens, um, when a person allows themselves to be vulnerable, gets vulnerable and then opens up and then is immediately trivialized or shut down or the conversation turns away from them. Um, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm good. And it happens more frequently than I care to admit. Uh, and it doesn't leave a good taste in my mouth. And so um, from that regard, I understand 
with all the chips down and his his apprehension inevitable, Rambo just says, "Here, here's here here's what I'm feeling, and here's why," and he's crushed, you know. And a lot of time has passed. A lot of therapy has passed. Uh, sure. And and this is also this also speaks to why so many vets, especially men, don't open up about their experiences. Um. You know, famously, you know, if you're on any kind of social media, you know that 22 vets a day, you know, kill themselves. Um, that's a very real thing. And uh, I don't even know if that number is accurate anymore. It's been so long, but I'm, I'm sure it's high. Um, I know for a fact that vets have sat in a VA parking lot waiting to get mental health treatment and have opted instead to shoot themselves. Um, that's a very dark topic to address, but these are the times we live in. And if we're afraid to actually address these things, then we're afraid to address the topic, right? We have, what we, are we doing otherwise? Right. We have no problem sending these guys off to war, but we don't want to give them, you know, post care. Um, well, the war is the worst thing we can do to humanity. Um, yeah, these guys are going to need a lot of mental health care. Now, fortunately, um, there is now a, um, you know, a nationwide um, suicide, a mental health 911, if you will, which is yep. awesome. Um, but I see it in vets all the time. You know, last last 4th of July, you know, I sat with a buddy of mine um, who lost a couple of friends of his on a, um, uh, a convoy that he was in charge of, you know, in Afghanistan. Um, and guys died on his watch, and he feels personally responsible for that. Um, is he? No. He's not. Can't control how he feels. But he can't control how he feels, you know. Yeah. And so, um, you know, personally, I have a hard time opening up. I have a hard time sharing my feelings um, sometimes. I wrestled with this notion of having you on in, the, in this regard because I knew just based on things you have said in the past in, in Video Village and some of the conversations we've had before and after some of the readings that, like, I, I knew this side of you existed. And, and it, that's not the reason I had you on at all. I mean, I, I've gotten to know you a little bit yeah. over the last year. And, like, I, I find you just to be one of the more real people I've ever met in my life. And you, I, I respect that and I respect you and I respect the fact that you just opened up the way you did, which you didn't need to do. And the fact that you did it so w- willingly says a lot about you. And I, I don't want you to think that I brought you on for that. Well, th- that is, that was not at all the reason I brought you on. If I had gotten the idea um, that you were going to exploit me, we would have, we've had a much different conversation. I would agree. But First Blood is objectively an amazing movie and a damn good one. So, yeah, I was all in. I was all in. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, and, and you're right. It is Stallone. It, 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 upon further reflection, yeah, it is, it is Stallone's finest achievement in, in, in celluloid. It's, it's the best work he's done. Man, I love you. You are the man. I've, I've enjoyed every minute of this. And I can't believe we're at two hours already. But you know what? People are going to have to just deal with it because – this was an important conversation and I, I want to have you back. Um, I feel like we just sort of scratched the surface on, on a lot of things, particularly with the things you've seen and the things you've done in your life. And, and maybe we'll have you come back on and talk more about that. But I really do appreciate you opening up the way you just did. My, my, my dad is going to love this. Uh, my, yeah. my, my, <laughs> I was, well, we, were, we were talking about, you know, the, the film class I'm in and yep. Um, yep. that brought up a lot of different conversations and we were talking about, you know, is, 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 is the Godfather a family movie or is it a gangster film? Or, you know, we were talking about, you know, we were talking about first blood. Um, he, he saw it three times. He took both of his brothers to go see it. 
Like he, he was like, this, they don't do movies like this. What, what, you just sort of touched on why I'm doing these shows. And I guess like, is listen, I can do whatever I want. I could do whatever topic I want. And I love that. I love that feeling. But like, I'm, I'm very thoughtful in the movies that I choose because they, they have to be something that's meaningful to me at whatever stage of my life that that movie and I intersected. And First Blood, for every, all the reasons we just sort of articulated, is one of those films for me. It, it, it's an action film, but it's more than that, and it's meaningful, and it has something to say. There are themes about it that not most movies capture, and so that's why I chose it, you know? And then, they, then, they, then the challenge is, all right, who do I want to bring on to talk about that, to sure. just articulate that? And you and I started going back and forth about First Blood. We're like, yes, this has to be. This has to, there's, there's a million movies you and I could have done. But like First Blood, it just made sense. And like I have Scott Saffon coming on in a few weeks and we're going to talk about Deliverance, which yeah. turns 50 this year, which is literally one of my favorite films. And I know Scott and I know what he thinks of that film. And he lives in Georgia and there's a there's a whole Georgia component to that film. And I can't wait to get yeah. into that yeah, as well. But, sure. like, but these are the decisions I get to make. And they're they're very liberating because I could choose so many different movies and these are the ones I'm going to choose. And I don't care if I get eight listeners to listen to the deliverance episode, because that's probably all I'm going to get. And I know you'll be one of the eight and I'll be one of the eight. And that's fine. Um, All all my homies, all my homies, all my film buff friends, they're going to, my, my, my film professor is going to get a copy of the podcast. You said first blood's a top 20 action film for you. No, a top 20 film, not action, just film. I think it is. Okay, what else is on that list? Just in no, oh part- my in no particular order. What else is on that list? I wow, you're really you're you're killing me with this. Jeez. Um, all right. I mean, listen. Without a doubt, I mean, this is number one. Is it's number one, and then there's a huge gap, and then there's everything else. Two thousand one, a space odyssey is absolutely number one. You got the film so poster the, behind you. The yeah, poster, yeah. The French the French one sheet is right behind me in my my little studio here. Um, Raiders, as we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. is definitely on the list. Uh, Deliverance is on the list. Sure. Uh, more recently, I would put Heat on the list. Oh God, oh, Michael Mann. Oh, God, yeah. Big, big. Yeah, if you want to come back and talk about Heat, man, you, you consider it done. We'll, we'll talk Just about when. We, we, I'll tell you what. We talk about Heat. It's going to be a three-hour podcast. That's after editing. <laughs> heat, heat, uh, heat. There are so many elements of Heat that I right. Oh my God. You know, okay, the bank sequence, the the withdrawal, right when they're when they're moving down the street, that sure. is literally taught to Marines in combat. I heard this. I read about that. That's actually taught because that's a perfect withdrawal. The communication, the firing, the covering fire, all of it is perfect. Even, I even read that they show the way Val Kilmer handled his rifles. Yes. And that sequence is like the way to hold a firearm. A hundred percent. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. That's because exa- it's re- like, okay, so John Wick, uh, uh, there, there is a very specific style to the way John Wick carries his weapon and the way, and the way he uses it. He's ambidextrous with his weapon, but it's, it's what's called the center axis, right? So, um, you're familiar with math. You've got the, the vertical and the horizontal axis. So the vertical axis, the center axis, or axis, that's where he holds his weapon. It's almost always in the center of his body, right? So wherever he you're turns, right. the weapon turns, right? Yep. It's not out here. He's not flagging anybody. It's it's very compact. Close to his torso. Right. It's very compact and direct. Okay. That's a very action sequence thing to do, right? The way Val Kilmer handles his weapon in heat is perfect. 
Amazing. Here's what I'll say, because you and I, right before we started recording, we were talking about you just got a new Blu-ray player that your dad got you. And, yeah, yeah. And I, I just bought a couple years ago, I bought the 4K Blu-ray. And I know that Sex. I know that I know Heat just came out on 4K not that long ago, right? Here's what I propose. We're we're doing this now in real time. Okay. The, the next episode that you come back, we'll probably do this early next year. Okay. Okay. Because I'm pretty much scheduled for the rest of, of fourth quarter. We will do we're gonna both watch the 4K of heat. And then you and I are going to come on and talk about why heat is one of the greatest movies ever. How's that sound? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I just, I just bought the book heat too. Oh, I'm reading it right now. I oh, just started I, it. I, it just came in the mail yesterday. I'm I just started. it. Okay. Okay. We have to talk about the deeply underrated career of Michael Mann. Oh, of course. He's, 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 I think he's shooting the, uh, he's shooting Ferrari right now, but, um, that is a date. That is a commitment. Okay. I'm going to hold you to that. We're going to do heat. We're going to talk about the book heat two, And we're going to just, we're going to geek out. I mean, if we did two hours on first blood, man, I'm, I'm in big trouble. Oh, for man. Heat. Well, I mean, so, it's, it's, it's literally twice as long. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, listen, I'm going to let you go. This was a blast, Jason. Thank you so much for being on. I, again, thank you for your service. Um, I'm happy to see you in a good place in Detroit. You're back home. Yeah, man. You're, you're a treasure. And, oh man. Uh, I'm, so glad, I'm so glad we're friends and we met each other much later in life, but I'm so blessed that we have. I, so. I feel, I feel so fortunate. I don't meet many civilian friends. Um, honestly, my, the vast majority of my friend group are, are all military guys of some capacity. Um, it's really great to get a fresh, honest perspective. Um, and to have these conversations about things that we we enjoy mutually, um, of course. What First Blood's just a great film. Objectively, it's just a great film. I don't mean good; I mean great. Um, this was a blast. I love talking about things that I enjoy with people who, whose company I enjoy. So, thank you very much for having me, Dennis. I really hope you enjoy your night. It's been a blast, Jason. Thanks again, buddy. We'll be in touch. Take care, man. Cheers, bro. <laughs>